If you will, turn with me to Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, we're going to return to this sentence that we um, started working through a few weeks back. Really the third uh, command or duty that's enjoined uh, to the promise that's at the beginning or the confidence we have, the gospel state at the beginning. And this is one sentence from verse 19 through 25 that we're walking through together. Verses 19 through 21, summing up what we have in Christ. And then verses 22, 23, and 24 through 25, giving us three separate commands or duties that are enjoined to what we have in Christ. Because this is true of what we have in Christ, therefore, let us do this, and let us do this, and let us do this. And we're looking at the second of those commands today. But we want to read the whole text together. Verses 19 to 25 in the original language are one sentence. And so we'll just read it together so you hear it together, and then we'll pray. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places... By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near let me pray father we ask that we would receive this for what it is, the word of the Lord. That your spirit would give us ears to hear what he's saying to the churches. That we would be a people who hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, knowing that he who promised is faithful. Father, we pray that you would be heard by us. That we would hear the word of the head of the church, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as he speaks by his spirit through this book that was superintended by the spirit. Not only for the sake of the Hebrew Christians of the first century, but for the sake of the church in every generation. May we hear and be encouraged by your spirit to hold fast without wavering. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, maybe I should start with the question, what are you living for? What are you living for? It's, it's maybe a particularly appropriate question in our co- current moment. What are you holding fast to? Where do you rest, if you will, the weight of your soul? Where is your hope? lying currently. Maybe another way to ask it is, what idols do we hold fast to? Most of us, if we're honest, are living for the next thing. When I say the next thing, what I mean by that is, um, I'll start with the young people. 
when I just get done with high school, then. If I can just finish college, then. If I just get a spouse, then. If I just have a child, then. You don't know that all of those things don't add up to more freedom, but there you go. If I could just get a job, then, or just get a promotion, then, or just see my kids turn that, my adult kids especially, turn that corner, I'd like to see them turn, then. If I could just move to another state, then. If I could just get past this particular illness, then. Some are living for more trivial matters. If I could just get to Friday. If I could just take a vacation. Some are holding to matters that are of a particular, particular social, political outcome, if you will. If we would just see the lockdowns end. Or just see the whole face of our neighbors then. Or just see the right folks win in November. If our state would just start storing water so we wouldn't have an artificial drought. Or if they'd start clearing dead trees in the forest so we wouldn't be overrun by fires. Or if they would just stop ending the use of nuclear power and fossil fuels so we wouldn't have rolling blackouts while borrowing energy, if you will, or buying energy from other states that are getting it via fossil fuels. If only our state would stop crushing the state with taxes and regulation, then all would be well. Some are holding fast to particular moral and religious outcomes. If only our state would cease with this culturally Marxist revolution. If only our state would cease using the instrument of government, particularly through education, to force a sexual revolution upon our children. If only our state would cease its wicked endorsement of the murder of the unborn. If only our state would understand that churches are in fact free to gather for worship. If we could just get our own building or just find a place to gather inside on Sunday mornings. See, I could keep going, right? Listen, these things we hold fast to are real good things, right? They're real goods. But they're false hopes. They make good gifts and terrible masters. If we trust in them, lean lean our weight upon them, they're idols. And our idols may or may not disappoint us now, but more importantly, they will utterly fail us in eternity. Idols are always faithless. And will be of no consolation in the judgment. None. These goods may be desirable. I desire almost everything on that list. But they cannot bear the weight of our souls. So what can bear the weight of our souls now and in eternity? What can? Only Christ. Only Christ. Christ alone is our hope. And to him alone, we must hold fast. The apostle understood this, thus he commanded us to hold fast in Christ. Look at 
Hebrews 10 and verse 23. I told you already in 19 through 21, he has summed up our gospel privileges in Christ, if you will. And then in verse 22, he gives a command. Verse 23, a command. Verse 24 and 25, a command. But look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this command today. I want you to see what it means to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. And we'll take the command in three parts. The first command to, to just follow Russell and alliterate. I'm going to go ahead and do it. He tempted me to it last week. The first, the first part of this command that we're going to take on is our real hope. Our real hope. The second, our resolute grip. And the third, our relentlessly faithful God. So let's look at our real hope. Look at verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Herein is a duty laid down for us. I've told you the gospel. Now I'm going to lay down certain Christian duties. We are being commanded to hold fast to the confession of our hope. Now I want to look more at the nature of of holding fast in our second point when I said having a resolute grip. But right now what I want to do is consider what's our real hope. Note the language that I use because I'm using it technically when I say real hope. We have a real hope we confess. We confess or profess something that is objectively true and real. By hope, he's not saying the hopefulness you profess. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you have hope in your heart as a kind of synonym for faith. That's not what he's saying. Hope here is not subjective. Hope here is objective. Think of it like this. If I'm using hope subjectively, I say something like, I hope my team wins. Or I hope the stock market improves. Or I hope the governor allows us to gather. That's using it subjectively. If I'm using hope objectively, I mean something different. For example, if I get a pay cut, but I've built up a big savings account, then I still have an objective and real hope. Well, my pay was cut, but I built up a good savings. Someone might have a hope in their generous retirement package, or they might have hope in living in the most powerful and wealthy nation on earth, or they might have hope in the rights guaranteed in the Constitution. We can go on and on about the kinds of hopes we might have. This command is not speaking to something uncertain, to hoping that something might be. It's an objective hope. So we confess or profess Hope in things, whether princes or wealth or strengths. And as Christians, we are professing or confessing a real hope. So what is our hope? What is it? What is the hope we confess? Our hope is Christ. Our hope is Christ. We must remember this command follows a summary statement. Look at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have... Now, he's going to say we have two things. 
the first thing in 19 and 20, and the second thing in 21. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places, which is just the holy of holies, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have, secondly, a great priest, which is a kind of circumlocution, it's a short way of saying a great high priest over the house of God. So we have this Christ who has made it so that we might, by his own sacrificial service, made it so we might draw near to God in the Holy of Holies. We might dwell where he is. We have a Christ who's given us that. And this Christ has also, or is also, constantly interceding for us. He ever lives to preserve us to the end. He is our great high priest. We have this. That's what we have. Look at ver- this is this whole section's bracketed. Look at chapter four and verse fourteen, verse fourteen through sixteen, and verse um, chapter ten. Ch- sorry, chapter four, verse fourteen through sixteen, and chapter ten, verse nineteen 20 through twenty-one are bracketing this whole middle section of the letter. But look at verse fourteen of chapter four. Since then, we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to that throne of grace, that we may, have, we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, we're to hold fast to the confession of our hope. And Christ is our hope. Christ is our hope. Not anything else. Christ is our hope. Not the outcome of the election in November. Christ is our hope. Not the outcome of COVID. Christ is our hope. We have to just have that drilled in. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Christ is our hope. Christ is our hope. Look at Hebrews chapter 6. And verse 19, hope will be personified here as Christ. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place. Christ is our hope. He's the one who enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus is gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We have this hope. Who is Christ? He's our hope. Christ is the sure and steadfast anchor for our soul, a hope that enters in behind the curtain. God made good promises to his people. He made good promises to his people, and Christ is the yes to all those promises. Look at 2 Corinthians. Keep your hand in Hebrews 10 and look over at 2 Corinthians in chapter 1. 2 Corinthians in chapter 1 and look at verse 20. For all the promises of God. How many of the promises of God? All the promises of God. For all the promises of God. That is a summary statement of everything he promised from Genesis through the end of the book. All the promises of God 
find their yes in him. The him there is Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Do you hear that? Christ is our hope. Our hope is real. The life, death, resurrection, ascension, current session, and return of our Lord Jesus Christ is our hope. And we have professed or confessed that he is our hope. That's what we've done. We sing together. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Look at Romans 10. Romans 10 and verse 9. Look there. This is an incredibly familiar passage, I'm sure, to all of you. Especially if you grew up in youth ministry in the 80s and 90s and did the Romans roads everywhere you went. Romans 10 and verse 9 and 10. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. What's his point here? His point isn't that there are two acts that save you, one internal and one external. His point is just what Jesus says when Jesus says, out of the heart proceeds the words of the mouth. So the words from your mouth proceed from your heart. Therefore, if you believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord, then you confess it with your mouth. You make it known. You believed in your heart and confessed or professed with your mouth your hope in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, the author of Hebrews is saying, hold fast to that hope. Hold fast to it. And that leads to our second point, our resolute grip. If our hope, if our real hope is Christ, let's talk about our resolute grip on him. Our holding fast to him. We're being commanded in Hebrews 10, 23. Look back there. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope and notice the qualification on it without wavering. We're being commanded here to hold resolutely to our confession. To make a profession of Christ or a confession of Christ is to make a statement of allegiance and trust. We're confessing publicly. We're confessing out loud. We're saying out loud as we do every time we sing. I don't know if you think about that. We're commanded to sing. It isn't an option. It isn't like you can come and choose to sing or not sing. You're commanded to sing. So if you're standing there not singing, you're actually being disobedient. Just to be clear, in case you weren't. Right? Just like, well, you all pray, but I'm not going to. Right? But when we sing, we actually publicly confess things together. That's what we're doing. We're publicly together confessing things. Think of what we're publicly confessing. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. That's what we profess together. That's what we profess in baptism. We profess this with our lips. 
We profess this with our lives. Think of the ways in which the profession of our hope or the confession of our hope is made. Think of it. Prayer. When we pray, we profess where our hope lies. When we don't pray, we also profess where our hope lies. Reading the word. When we carve out time to be in the word, to hear from the Lord, we profess where our hope lies. When we don't have any interest in hearing from him and his word, we also profess where our hope lies. Think of your family life and worship. Your family life and worship. How we live together as a family. How we love the Lord with one another. In our moral decision making as a family. In the way we treat others. The way we speak about others. The way we serve others. How we worship together as a family. These things profess where our hope lies. They profess whether Christ, especially to your kids, they profess whether Christ is your life or just something you add on occasionally to your life. Lord's Day worship, how we treat the Lord's Day, whether we gather for preaching and prayers and the sacraments, that confesses where our hope lies. Whether we're able to carve our hands off of the television and it's remote, and direct it away from secular affairs and take time to rest in God. To worship, to be thankful, to hear from him tells us where our hope lies. Just tells us. Yeah, I mean, think about the Lord's day. All the way back in the Sabbath command in the Old Testament. What's the point? Six days you work, one day you rest. What's happening? Is it, is it just God is just needy and needs a whole day for worship? No, God is asking, do you trust me? Do you understand the purpose of your life is worship? Are you willing to rest in me? Are you willing to give up the other things and just settle your hearts and minds to hearing from me? Or do you continually have to clamor for the things of this world? Our use of money professes where our hope lies. Look at it. That's not just me. That's Paul. Look at first Timothy, first Timothy chapter six. Look at verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, incidentally, um, from a first century standard, that's y'all. You're the rich in this present age. Right? You, don't, you don't actually ever have to pray, give us this day our daily bread, because you're worried about whether you won't eat anything that day. That's pretty rare for us. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, now listen, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. 
See, when we give sacrificially, when we give joyfully, when we don't rest our hope on the uncertainty of riches, we're showing where our hope lies. Suffering shows where your hope lies. Look look at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 again, go back there. How you suffer and how you die professes where your hope lies. Hebrews 10 and verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. That's the brothers and sisters in Christ who are being imprisoned for the faith. This isn't just like you had compassion on murderers who are locked up in prison. This means that in the first century, Christians were being persecuted and jailed, and you would go and serve them. You would go and take food to them and blankets to them because the prison didn't provide those things, and you would provide it. But when you went, you would then be known to be associated with them. And while you were gone, they would come and plunder your house and rob you because you went to take care of your brothers and sisters in Christ in prison. And he's saying you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you, you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. That's holding fast to the confession of our hope, even in the midst of suffering and persecution. These are some of the ways we profess where our hope lies. And what this command is saying is, hold fast to your confession of hope without wavering. The original Greek here for wavering means to, it's, it's a negation of another term. But, it, you know, the term is to bend or lean to the right or left. You would, this, this Greek term is you would bend to the right or you'd bend to the left. Or you'd lean to the right or you'd lean to the left. And it's a negation of that. Don't bend to the right or to the left. You're to hold fast without bending in either direction. You're to stand your ground. Think of Martin Luther. Here I stand. I can do no other. You guys know um, the story of Hugh Latimer and Ridley, Ridley and Latimer, you've heard the story. Protestant reformers in England strapped to a pile of wood to be burned at the stake. And here's what Latimer says at the end of their life. If you want to look, hear what it means to hold fast the confession of your hope without wavering, here's what it is. Latimer says this to Ridley as they're being lit on fire. Play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust will never be put out. That's holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. I'll give you a less dramatic one. J. Gresham Machen, Princeton theologian, started Westminster Seminary, Westminster Seminary, Pennsylvania, then which gave birth to Westminster Seminary, California started the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, started a foreign missions society, big proponent of classical education, etc. Here's what he said on his deathbed, his last words when he died. He didn't die of persecution. He just died of, I think he was probably worn out. 
But, but here's, here's what he said. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. It's Christ's obedience to God on my behalf that's credited to me. I'm so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. And he died. Do you hear the confession of their hope? They held fast without wavering. We must be resolutely committed to the truth that Christ is our life. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. I refuse to look to the left or to the right. I look in two directions. I look backward to the cross and resurrection of Christ, and I look forward to his glorious return. But I don't look to the left or the right. Now, this command assumes something, though, doesn't it? When he gives you the command, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, he's assuming something. What's he assuming? He's assuming there will be a temptation to look to the right or the left, to bend one or the other direction, to lose your grip on Christ, to let it loosen. If you're being commanded to hold fast without wavering, then we know here that folks must have been starting to bend. We know that the Hebrew Christians were suffering much opposition. The loss of friends, being disliked and persecuted by the world. They were being imprisoned and they were dying. They were being allured to return to the outwardly glorious worship of the old covenant, to their identity with their own nation. They were being tempted by the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we are likewise tempted. So what does it look like to hold fast without wavering? Well, Hebrews actually lays it out for us. So let's look. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, or excuse me, chapter 3 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. See, Holding fast to the confession of our hope without wavering looks like keeping our eyes on Christ. Look what he says in Hebrews 12. Just keep your hand in three because we'll go back there. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that's the Old Testament saints, let us also lay aside every weight and sin sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So to hold fast to our confession without wavering, the confession of our hope without wavering, is to look to Christ, to keep looking to him. But it's also to keep listening to him. Look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 1. Hebrews 2 and verse 1. Therefore... We must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. What we've heard is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's laying down. Don't stop listening. Look at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. 
keep your eyes focused on Christ. Continue to listen to the Spirit speaking the Word. It looks like meeting together to stir one another up to love and good deeds. Let us consider, Hebrews 10, 24, how we might stir one another up to love and good works, not forsaking the meeting together of ourselves, as is the habit of some, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It looks like suffering the loss of all things now as you're looking forward to a better reward, like we just read about the saints in Hebrews 10, 32 through 34. It looks like resisting sin and joyfully embracing discipline from the Father. Look at Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3. Consider him, that's Christ, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, but you ought to resist it. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Look down at verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, I I know it's virtuous in our culture to to think that because someone suffered, they are therefore virtuous and you ought to listen to what they have to say. That's sort of like a truth now. I suffered in this way, so my voice is more important than yours if you did not suffer in this way. But actually, the Bible never says that suffering is virtuous. It says that suffering with your eyes on Christ is virtuous. Suffering in a godly and faithful way is virtuous. Being trained by the suffering so that you become more and more like Christ is virtuous. It looks like holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering looks like living as sojourners and strangers in this world as we look forward to an eternal city where we dwell with Christ. It looks like remembering that we have a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's what it looks like. We are to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. We're to keep a resolute grip on Christ. We look back to the cross and resurrection. We look forward to the return of Christ. We do not look left or right. We hold fast without wavering. And that leads to the third point, our relentlessly faithful God. Our relentlessly faithful God. Look at the last phrase of Hebrews 10, 23. You want to see the grounding of this? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Here's the ground. Here's the motive for he who promised is faithful. Now, if I brought this straight over in the Greek word order, what you would hear is this. For faithful is he who promised. It's a little bit awkward in English, but it's emphatic in Greek. What you hear? Faithful is the one who promised. He's faithful. The emphasis here is on the faithfulness of the promiser. That's the motive for the resolute grip 
we have upon Christ. God has been and is relentlessly faithful to us. This is the same faithful God the Old Testament saints relied upon. Same faithful God. You want to see that? Look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 11. And dealing with Sarah. If you remember, Sarah was told that she would be with child, but she was past the age of childbearing. Look at verse 11. By faith, Hebrews eleven eleven. by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Same language. God promised and God is relentlessly faithful. Therefore, we ought to keep our eyes on him. Please hear this. I'm not saying that Sometimes God acts faithfully. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying God is faithful. That is who he is. God cannot be otherwise. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 17. We just read the verses after this, but look at verse, chapter 6 and verse 17. So when God... Desire to show more convincingly, by the way, more convincingly to Abraham and to those who follow him. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable or immutable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. You hear the language there? He's faithful. Edward Lee, one of our Puritan forebearers, said it this way. God is faithful. First, he's faithful in himself by an uncreated faithfulness. It's just who he is. Secondly, God is faithful in his decrees, what he decides to do. Thirdly, God is faithful in all his ways and works. Everything God does, he's faithful. Fourthly, God is faithful in all his words and speeches. There's nowhere where you will find God to be unfaithful in himself or in his works toward us. Faithful. God is faithful. Louis Burkhoff said this, the, this faithfulness of God is of the utmost practical significance to the people of God. It is the ground of their confidence, the foundation of their hope, and the cause of their rejoicing. It saves them from the despair to which their own faithfulness might easily lead. Let me stop there for a second. Where does your own unfaithfulness potentially easily lead? Despair. Leads to despair. How many of you living in the midst of this moment are not unlike me in that your own faith, unfaithfulness begins to direct you toward despair? Worry, anxiety, human solutions by which you might fix it, make it better, rather than saying, 
God is faithful. That's my confidence. God's faithfulness gives them courage to carry on in spite of their failures. God's faithfulness fills their hearts with joyful anticipations, even when they are deeply conscious of the fact that they have forfeited all the blessings of God. God's faithfulness is their encouragement. Do you understand that? Listen, sovereign grace. God's faithfulness is the ground of all true religion. He makes promises. He keeps them. That's the ground. Who he is. He's faithful. He's faithful. He is the one who graciously made promises to us. He is the one who kept all those promises in Christ. He is the ground of all true religion. He is our hope. We are anchored to the rock who is Christ. In other words, we have no uncertain foundation. Thus, we must not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that Satan inspires among his ministers. We must not be overcome by every wave of temptation that comes from the world of the flesh and the devil, and we must not be overwhelmed by every obstacle of persecution, suffering, and travail that Satan, sin, and death throws at us. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Now, I want you to hear something about what I'm saying. While we are to be motivated to hold fast without wavering, I'm not saying that our confidence is to be found in our resolute grip. What I'm saying is, and what Hebrews is saying is, that God's relentless faithfulness is where your confidence should be. As Matthew Henry said, we must depend more upon his promises to us than upon our promises to him. We are holding fast to that reality in Christ. And we are those who know that ultimately it is Christ who holds us fast. Let me pray. Father, we are thankful. We pray that you would cause us to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering knowing that you who promised, that you are faithful. May we never lose sight of that. Father, we confess that every day with every new wave of this troubling year, every new piece of news that relentlessly assaults us 24-7, that it's easy for us to bend to the right or the left rather than to keep our eyes on Christ. May you cause us, in the face of every difficulty, every circumstance, every victory, everything that goes right and everything that goes wrong, to keep our eyes on Christ, to continually be reminded that you are faithful.
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.